Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 31 is where we pick up. We didn't quite finish the 31st chapter, and I would like to tonight, even though I know it may look intimidating because it's long, get through to the uh, close to the end of chapter 32 as we look at this song of Moses here in the 32nd chapter. Of course, we're coming kind of to the closure now of the book of Deuteronomy, really the first 31st chapters. Uh, of the book uh, have just sort of been a a series of sermons as Moses is speaking to the children of Israel on the edge of the promised land right before his death where Joshua his assistant will now take over and he will be the one to then lead the children of Israel into the promised land uh, in the next generation here. So Moses, again, just sort of uh, giving to them uh, a lot of things that he's already spoken to them about. Once again, reiterating truths, restating to them, again, the law of God, and, and really just wanting to, in this farewell speech, really prepare them. It's kind of their graduation address. He's, he's seeking to encourage them as they move on to this next stage and season of life. And he's really kind of giving them this challenge and exhortation that they would follow God rather than turn away from them. So as we come to chapter 31, we left off there in verse 18, where God has just kind of given some disappointing uh, news to Moses and to Joshua. Moses is now told to inaugurate Joshua as the leader who will be his successor. And yet God has told Joshua and Moses that after Moses's death, that the children of Israel are going to rebel against the Lord, that they're going to turn to other gods. And it's in light of that, God now now tells Moses to do something that will help somewhat God's hope and attention is to at least cause some of the people whose hearts are inclined towards rebellion and turning away from God to have something that will be a constant testimony in their hearts to perhaps bring them back on track towards the Lord or to keep them from turning away from the Lord and what God tells them to do. Look at it there in verse 19. He says, now, therefore, chapter 31, verse 19, this is what you should do. He says, now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. The idea is teach this song to them that they know how to sing it, put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. So what God's going to tell Moses to do here, as we see, is God's going to give to him a song, a spirit inspired song. And again, I think the best songs that we have to sing are when songs truly are genuinely songs from the Lord. Uh, when God gives a song to a musician or a worship leader or someone who can record a song and it's not from their own ideas or really from their own human capability, but it's genuinely a song that came from God's spirit. He inspired it, gave them the lyrics, the, the melody, the rhythm, everything that goes along with it. And, you know, what's a really beautiful thing we'll see as we begin to look at this it is God understands better than anyone the power of music and the fact that music and songs have a very powerful influence upon human beings. Even before people in this day and age, artists and, and those who want to influence, and again, those in marketing understand the power of music, the power of a song, of, of a, a jingle. I mean, how many useless uh, you know, jingles and songs do we all have in our heads because of things that we've learned, right? Nationwide is what? See that? You may just... You see, I mean, just the worthless nonsense that remains in our head, you know, the, 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 the jingle, the song to the Brady Bunch, you know, or, or Gilligan's Isle, or I mean, all, and, and why? Because it's music, it's set to a melody, and there is something about music that, that it, it almost has an adhesive to it, does it not? I mean, it just sticks in your brain. Uh, we think of songs that we've listened to maybe when we were younger years ago or that we heard. And it's amazing how those things have this incredible power, uh, maybe even like a poem, a rhyming poem, but, but even more than a poem or literature or a speech or anything we can read textually, there's something about music 
in the way God has wired and created us that it has this like adhesive capability to just stick in our minds and really not just to stick there, but to really influence us because there's a message behind music and musicians and artists and even people in marketing capacities, they understand this. Uh, and that's why they use the power of music, a jingle, a song, these kind of things, because they know the incredible influence. Well, he, here's what we need to understand. God knew this before anybody. And that's why, look at this. He, he, that's why God gave us a singing faith. Our faith is a singing faith because God wants us to learn spiritual truths. And I tell you this, one of those, one, it is amazing how sometimes it is easier for me to remember, and I'm just speaking from personal experience, it's easier for me sometimes to remember lyrics to worship songs and to music and to hymns sometimes than it even is to retain and to remember scripture. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And there, you know, whether it's healthy music, but here's the thing, or whether it's destructive and polluted music, it's amazing the influence that it has. And God understood that. And that's why God here is saying, Moses, listen, write down this song, teach it to the children of Israel. He says, put it in their mouths that it may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. The idea of witness for me, God is saying it will carry a message for me. God says this song, as they learn it, and then as it retains its ideas and message, it will be a witness, a constant message to them of what I declared to them to help them spiritually in their lives. And again, the power of music, God understands it. And I think we would be wise to recognize the power of music for ourselves. That's why it is a beautiful thing to sing songs, Lord. That's why it is a healthy thing. Do you want to influence your heart? Do you want to influence your mind? You know, turn off the trash on the radio or whatever other junk you pump into your head and, and, and put worship music on. And let the spiritual truths of God's word permeate your mind and permeate your soul and see if it does not give you a different attitude during the day because you know as well as I do. Even, right, unconsciously, you flip on the radio, there's a song on. I, I mean, you know, and, and, and I can accidentally, you know, flip on a song. I mean, today's day and age, you know, and, and I have, you know, teenagers, young people in my house, and, and if there's not the Christian station, I flip off a song. Before I know it, I, I'm walking through my, my, my name is no. My sign is no. My number is no. And, and here's some song from, uh, 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 I guess none of you have ever heard secular music before. I feel really unspiritual. Uh, but that's Megan Trainor. So I'm a real pagan. That's, you know, it's, she sang some other filthy stuff too. But it's amazing. You don't have to try and put the stuff in your head. It goes in there. So if you can consciously put the right stuff in, recognize the value of that. For yourself personally, for those of us who are parents with our children to realize that the stuff that they're pumping into their heads and their hearts and their minds, listen, do you think this is not affecting our culture? You listen to some of the really base, vile stuff in some hardcore music or in some you know modern pop music or some rap music listen i mean there's some really horrific messages going forth in this stuff and it affects people it influences their mind i i made very good friends with a couple of very uh very solid gifted christian rap artists when we were pastoring in pennsylvania and we were ministering in in york uh york city there and man i'll tell you they were fantastic these guys were like modern day psalmists i could bring them in the middle of a park in 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 the the inner city areas and and they could draw crowds in ways i could never draw crowds because of the music they sang but their lyrics were scriptural and spiritually solid and it was fantastic the impact that they could have so here, God shows his wisdom and understanding of these things. And therefore, he's telling Moses now to add something to his resume. He's not just a lawgiver and he's not just a leader. Now he's also a song writer and a song teacher. He says, Moses, I'm going to give you a song. Write it down. Verse 20 says, and when I have brought them to the land 
flowing with milk and honey of which I swore to their fathers and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat. Then God says they notice verse 20, they will turn away to other gods and serve them and they will provoke me and break my covenant. So God here predicts he sees in advance how when they became prosperous in the land flowing with milk and honey, the blessing and the prosperity of God they would ultimately take for granted. They would begin to turn away to other gods, forsake the Lord and break their covenant relationship. And it shall be, verse 21, when many evils and troubles come upon them. And the idea there is because of their disobedience. Notice when they turn away to other gods, as a result, many evils and troubles will come upon them. That's called sowing and reaping. Uh, when the people would turn away from God, they would inherit the problems, the difficulties, the troubles they would bring upon their lives as the result of sin and disobedience. And he says, verse 21, when that happens and the troubles have come upon them, that notice, verse 21, this song will testify, the message of this song will testify against them as a witness. I love this statement, verse 21, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. Notice again, God says they, they may forget every other sermon they hear, but they won't forget the song. Something about the song. He says that song won't be forgotten. So Moses, there's a message I want to share with them, truths, doctrinal ideas. So he says, write it down in a song. I'm going to give it to you in a song. Teach them because they won't forget the song. Something about its melody and its rhythm and its lyrics would just stay with them. And he says they won't forget it. Again, why verse 21? God says, For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I brought them to the land which I swore to give them. And therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. That's pretty impressive. Moses is 120 years old. His first hit... And he writes a song in a day. And it's a long song if you read chapter 32. I mean, this is not like a little short jingle nationwide is on our side here. I mean, this, is a, this is an extensive song. But just how beautiful when God wants to give someone a song. And if you're a musician or someone who's inclined to it, God can do that. And by his spirit in one day, look at that. In one day, the same day he wrote the song and he was efficient and he taught the song the exact same day. Of course, he realized his time was short. He, he was going to die rather shortly. So he was, I'm sure, expediting the process here. But God says, I know their behavior before I bring them in. So teach them this song. Verse 23, then he, and that's capitalized. That's the Lord himself now, not Moses. The Lord inaugurated Joshua, son of Nun, Thus, he will be Moses' successor to take over the leadership, saying to Joshua, be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So again, we've seen God say this a few times already to Joshua as he's preparing him for his new leadership position. And again, why would God say be strong and of good courage? Because Joshua was feeling weak and he was fearful and lacking courage because of what he was facing. He was facing something that from his perspective looked very intimidating. It seemed very overwhelming to him personally. Again, keep in mind, not only is it a huge responsibility to fill the shoes of Moses and to take on the responsibility of leading this massive congregation of people, but on top of that, all the challenges. Joshua's seen what the people have been like, the complaining, the rebellion, and then God keeps saying again and again, when they get into the land, they're going to behave really well, Joshua. They're going to be the best crowd you ever took. He's saying, when they get into the land, they're going to be, a bunch of stinkers and rebels and they're going to turn away and worship other gods and Joshua's thinking I don't know if I want the job description I don't know if I'm interested and so now that he's feeling fearful this is this is going to be very difficult and he's looking at something in his life that seems very overwhelming for him to handle and so the word of the Lord to him is is Joshua listen I have called you to this I've set this before you I already know what you're going to face. I know it's too huge for you. I know it's intimidating for you. I know it strikes fear in your heart. But he says, Joshua, I'm calling you to this. I'm arranging this. So he says, you be strong and have courage. Have courage. And why should he have courage? One simple reason, because the Lord says, 
I will bring this to pass and I will be with you. He says, you shall bring them in. It's going to happen. Not saying it's going to be easy, but he says, it will come to pass. And he says, and I will be with you. It was the presence of God that was going to be with Joshua that was his source of confidence. And listen, whenever you and I face something in our lives, as at times we do, like Joshua, and you're looking at something and, and it's in front of you, and, and, and you know the path forward is what God is calling you to in this situation, and it seems intimidating, overwhelming, fearful. There are a lot of things that can present themselves to all of us, like Joshua, that strike fear in our hearts. We're concerned, how's it going to work out? I don't see how it's going to happen. It seems overwhelming. It seems you know, too impossible and complicated and, and we get worried and fearful and, and God says to us, listen, you be strong. You, you have courage. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do this. It is going to happen. You'll see it unfold one step at a time, but I am with you and it's the presence of God with us that gives us the ability to have confidence and to have courage because we know that he is with us. That was Joshua's sole source of courage. Verse 24, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord saying, take this book of the law, probably a reference to Deuteronomy, could be the first five books, but probably a reference to Deuteronomy there. And take it, he says, now that you've written it out, and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. Remember, inside the ark was the budded staff of Aaron, the, the golden pot of manna, and the Ten Commandments. But beside the ark, as a testimony, was a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, it seemed that it may be there as a witness against you. For again, verse 27, he says, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive, Moses says, with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? So you can tell Moses is older, he's seasoned, and he's ready to die because he does not care whose toes he steps on when he talks. I mean, he just, I, he's, I mean he's, he's, there's something about you know, progressing along in years in life, you begin to just not be as concerned because you realize that people are upset with you. It won't be that much longer. You'll be dead. It won't matter, right? <laughs> uh, so Moses just says to me, just, he's very straightforward. He says, I know your rebellion, your stiff neck. And if you're like this when I'm alive, how much worse are you going to be when I'm not around and my presence isn't there to kind of, you know, keep you in a sense in check because you feel accountable uh, Moses is concerned. He knows what they're going to do after he departs. God's been revealing this. Verse 28, he therefore says, Gather to me all the elders of the tribes and your officers. So bring together the leaders, he's saying, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth as witness against them. For I know, verse 29, that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And then evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. So again, Moses, again, somewhat prophesying as God's revealed to him that there's going to be rebellion, that they would turn away from God. Sadly, after all God had done for them, that they would turn away. And as a result of turning away from God, they would bring trouble and evil upon themselves as the result of their sin and disobedience and verse 30 then Moses spoke in the hearing of the words of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended and chapter 32 now begins this song lengthy song again and I have to tell you even after studying this and it's not even my first time teaching through the book of Deuteronomy I still look at this and go I have no clue where's the rhyme or the rhythm in this puppy <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, just, it, maybe by next Wednesday, if one of you can rap this or something, or, you know, or, <laughs> or maybe this is a country song. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like a country song. I'll say that because it's kind of one of, it's kind of a little more depressing and, you know, talking about their errors and their mistakes. So it probably fits more the line of, 
you know, like a, a country song type thing, you know, how country songs usually are, you know, I lost this, I lost that, the world fell apart, and so on and so forth. And they usually have those kind of messages to them. So I don't know what type of song this was. You know, you could be ridiculous and say it's a rock song because he keeps calling God the rock, but I think that's quite a stretch as well too. Uh, but somehow this was a song, and I would be interesting. It's going to be interesting. Maybe we get to heaven. Moses will give us a solo or something, and uh, we can hear how this actually went. But here's the lyrics to this song from the Spirit because God wanted the message. Again, that was the important part, the message of it embedded in their hearts, the truths. Give ear, O heavens, he begins, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. So Moses begins by calling heaven and earth as witness, like a courtroom, he says, heaven and earth. I call as my witness to what I'm saying and, and presenting to the people this day. Verse 2, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as rain drops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. So interesting, he uh, alludes to his teaching and his speaking the truths of God to the people uh, uh, like rain that comes down and showers upon the grass and the tender herb or like dew on the grass in the morning. And again, uh, when there's a rainstorm, again, uh, it's just something that brings refreshment. It brings life. It brings vitality. And, and I think this is what, again, the Word of God, the teaching of God's Word should do. It should bring refreshment to people spiritually. It should bring life and growth and vitality. Uh, and, and this is what Moses is uh, referring to his teaching of the Word of God as and why it's valuable when we do what we're doing here, which is to listen to the Word of God, let the teaching of God's Word like rain go into our hearts and bring forth fruit for the Lord. Verse 3 says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. That's always good advice. Give greatness and, and praise to God because God is great. Just to, to ascribe to him the greatness of his worth. Verse 4, he tells him the reason why. For he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So notice the song begins by just sheerly giving praise and giving attention to the attributes of of the greatness of God, just some of the many ways that God is so great. And this is important because, as I said, as the song sort of carries on, it talks a lot about the people's rebellion and their failure. And the beginning for Moses to say, listen, do you realize how great your God is? Do you realize how wonderful? Why? And the idea here is, why would you ever want to rebel against someone like this? Why would you want to turn away? This is the idea, is that if they could remember the first part of the song, probably the rest of the song wouldn't even be necessary. If they could remember that this is what God is like, he refers to God as the rock. And again, the imagery there is, is one who is stable, one who is sure. A rock is something that is immovable, it's sturdy, it's something that's enduring. And he says, this is what God is like, he's a rock. He's a stable, enduring, immovable, steady, uh, in a sense, thing that we have to build our lives upon. We can build our lives upon the rock, the rock of ages. And what a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Because anything else we build our life on in this life is, is like shifting sand. And the storms come and, and, and the, the house comes. But if we build our life upon God, we build our life upon the rock, the rock of ages. He's never going to move. He's going to be stable. He's going to keep our life stable. You know, Jesus even said as far as the church, you know, he's, in referring to himself, he said, I, on, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And then we have this metaphor throughout the scriptures of the Lord as our rock. I like that metaphor. It's a great metaphor. If you want to remember something to just, you know, walk around with that, you know, Lord, you're a rock. You're the rock of ages. You're strong, you're steady, you're reliable. And, and to have that as the foundation of your life. And if that weren't enough, he says, his work is perfect. It's perfect. However God works and whenever God works, even we don't, we don't understand how God's working or why God's working the way he is, we can know that this steady, stable, sure rock, when he works, it's perfect. 
Lord, the way you work, it's always perfect. And a lot of times in hindsight, we look back and then we see that. Wow, Lord, that was perfect the way you did that. The way you put it all, that was perfect. You didn't mess up at all. You had all the, you know, everything outlined and, and, and working on multiple ends and bringing it all together. He says, for all his ways, the ways that God works, notice, are just. He's a God of truth. He never lies. He's never dishonest. He never changes. He's without injustice. He's righteous and he is upright. Again, that, that is a good, worthy, reliable God. This is who their God was, the God of Israel. This is who our God is as we love the God of Israel and worship and serve his son, Jesus Christ. This is our God. And as we remember that, it should want to anchor our hearts to build our life upon him and to trust him in every way and not turn away from him. Verse five, however, it says they have corrupted themselves. They are not as children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Verse 6, do you thus deal with the Lord? Some of your translations render that a little more clearly. Is this how you repay the Lord, Moses is saying? Is this how you repay this kind of a God by turning away from him? Oh, foolish and unwise people, is he not your father who bought you? So not only did God give birth to them and life to them, but he even redeemed them back. He purchased them and brought them back to himself. Has he not made you and established you? Again, in light of all God's done for you, he's saying, why would you corrupt yourself? Why would you turn away from him? Verse 7, he calls them, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations, he says. Ask your father, he will show you. That's always good advice. Your elders and they will tell you. The other is, is, is ask those older than you. Look to others and say, hey, you know, tell me, tell me the works of God. Tell me the ways of God to learn from others. He's saying, remember how God has worked throughout history. And he then alludes to it here, beginning in verse eight. When the most high divided the inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, that's perhaps an allusion to Genesis chapter 11 there at the Tower of Babel, when God confused their languages and separated at that point, humanity into by god's design different languages different races different ethnicities different nationalities god designed those things god created there to be diversity and nationality and race and ethnicity and language that was part of god's purpose and plan it happened from genesis chapter 11 god designed it god brought it to pass for his purposes he says, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples, that is where they would live geographically, according, notice he did it all, according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, a name for Israel, is the place of his inheritance. So part of what Moses alludes to there is as God was doing all that, he was doing it all with his mindset on the fact that Israel that special chosen people, the Jews who he chose out of all nations, and that nation would be his special people, his chosen people, through which he would fulfill his covenants and ultimately bring the word of God, through which he would bring the Messiah and the Savior of the world, and how to this day still everything revolves around not Washington, D.C. It revolves around Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. Not Moscow, not Washington, D.C., around the nation of Israel. That is God's toolpiece. Those are God's people, the Jews. They always have been. And God fulfills his purposes and plans nationally, internationally, as he separates and sets the boundaries of people and so on and so forth from the start. That has always been God's plan. Interesting verse 8 there, ever that indication that he sets the boundaries of the people listen to Acts 17 it says something similar it tells us it's in Acts 17 it says that God has made from listen one blood that's Adam every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth so in a sense we're all connected to the same parents and family Adam God's made of one nation or of one blood every nation to dwell on the face of the earth and he has determined their pre-appointed times, that is when they would live on earth, and the boundaries of their dwellings where they would live and exist. Here's the reason why. So that they should seek the Lord 
in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. I love that passage in Acts 17. It shows that how God superintends over everything in humanity and creation. Where somebody would be born, you know, what their nationality would be, what their language would be, where they would live on the globe geographically, their boundaries and everything. God determines all that in every human being's life with one primary focus in mind that all of that would lead them to the best possible place of reaching out and finding God for themselves. That's an amazing thing to think about. So God determines who would be born in the United States and who would be born in Africa and who would be born in China and, and, and in what family you would be born and in what generation you would be born and what and sometimes we, God, why this, why that, why this, why that? I'll tell you why. Because that is the best possible scenario for you to have potentially reached out and found God. That's amazing. That's the love of God, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, that he did all those things and does them that people ultimately, above all else, would find God personally in their lives. Answers a lot of questions that a lot of times we struggle through. Verse 10, he found him, that's referring to the nation of Israel now, in a desert land. Now, this is probably referring to their experience in Egypt when they were in a miserable condition before God drew them out. And in the wasteland, a howling wilderness, God encircled him and instructed him and kept him as the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye is a reference to the pupil, the most precious part uh, of the eye. And, and again, that's why God often refers to Israel as the apple of his eye. And you know, last time I checked, it never usually works good when you poke somebody in the eye. So when you mess with Israel, in essence, you're poking God in the eye. It's pretty simple. It doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. You know, I don't like poking you know, men larger than me in the eye. I would never want to poke God in the eye. And yet many people are treating and relating to Israel as if somehow it's only just a, a, a human relational thing. It is much bigger than that. That is the apple of God's eye. And when we deal with them wrongly, we must realize we cause offense, not just horizontally, but very much vertically as well, because God's seeking to keep them. Verse 11, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. So here this interesting picture and metaphor of God leading the nation of Israel once he took them out of Egypt, then leading them. And here the picture is of this eagle you know a, a bird of prey an eagle a falcon a bird of that type here and it's interesting picture god gives of him leading the nation of israel of how a mother eagle if you would at times would stir up the nest and that was the way to help mature the younger eaglets and to teach them how to fly it is typically they would these particular creatures will build their nest very very high up in elevation on the rocks and the only way that those eaglets can survive is being completely dependent upon the mother or the parental eagle bringing food up to them they're completely dependent and god made israel live completely dependent upon him but then there was also a process whereby as god was leading them he was maturing them and growing them and here this seems to be a reference of how verse 11 as the eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young and, and bears them up. It's a picture here of how this is how ultimately at a certain point when the parental eagle figure felt like that eaglet was ready to learn how to grow and develop, what they would do from that very high nest is they would stir up the nest to cause that little eaglet to... And, and as it's falling, screeching, thinking it's right before it splats, here comes Mama, Mama Eagle, swoops down, hovering, using its wings, bearing it up. And it was a process. So ultimately, that little eaglet, through straining and struggling on its own, because the nest kept getting stirred up and it kept getting pushed out of the net, actually figured out, ha, 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 oh, 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 you mean I can soar on my own? You mean I was built to soar and to fly independently by myself? And, but it was a process. It was a loving, 
process, but yet it was a, 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 you know, a, a constructive process where the nest was stirred and the eaglets would learn to fly. And this is what God was doing with Israel. As he took them through the wilderness and as he led them along, he was growing them. He was maturing them. It's just a, a beautiful analogy here the Bible uses of how the Lord worked with the nation of Israel. And really, in a lot of ways, I think how God at times works in our lives. Sometimes God stirs up the nest a little bit. And he lets us learn how to grow and he stretches us. And part of that involves a little bit of maybe, you know, discomfort or feeling like the bottom is dropping out and, and, you know, coming to realize that we were built to soar and that God by his spirit can help us to, to soar uh, just like if you would, the young eagle would learn that on its own. Verse 13, he made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields he made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. This speaks of God's gracious provision, his blessing upon his people. Curds from the cattle and milk of the flock, the fat of lambs, the rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with choicest wheat and drank wine and the blood of grapes. And, and, and here these things are just references to how God produced for them just such sweet prosperity. They were enjoying the blessing of God, the prosperity of God, meat and, and curds and milk and honey and so on and so forth. Verse 15, notice, however, but Jeshurun, which was a name given, one of many to Israel, means upright one. It's a reference to Israel here. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. He says, you grew fat and you grew thick. You are obese. Now, I guess if God's writing the song, he can say things like that. <laughs> it's pretty direct. But the idea is, again, is, is they became gluttonous. They, they became fulfilled and prospered and so forth to where they had experienced. And notice what happened in their prosperity. Then he forsook God who made him. So notice it was in the increase of prosperity and in ease and in prosperity that they began to develop the attitude that they didn't feel they really needed God. And a lot of times prosperity is a much more dangerous place than struggling and suffering is. Because in struggling and suffering, we're looking to God constantly. Because we need God for every hour, every ounce, or everything. In our, but when we're at ease and we're prospering, it's much more easy to, to have our confidence in other things and to forget God and to kind of forsake God relationally. So this was when Israel forsook God who made him. And scornfully esteemed, notice, the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your father did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you know not very interesting verse 16 and 17 they were worshiping and turning to foreign gods provoking god's jealousy and then verse 17 he describes their idolatry look at it he says as sacrificing to demons wow that's interesting that god's saying that worshiping other gods and other forms of worship God says it's not just worshiping foreign gods. God says it's actually the worship of demonic spirits because demonic spirits are misleading spirits that create other forms of worship. It's a very serious thing. God says here they were actually sacrificing to demons as they were worshiping these other gods unknowingly. And he says, you've become unmindful of God. You've forgotten the God who fathered you. Now, again, it doesn't mean they've forgotten the sense I said before is amnesia. Like, who was it that we used to worship? I mean, what, 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 what? the idea is, is to, to choose not to remember, to set aside. They set aside God and they pursued other things as well because of their pleasures and their drives. And when the Lord saw it, verse 19, he spurned them. Because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. And they have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. So interesting as the, this began to unfold. God says in verse 20. 
If that's what you want to do, turn away from me, then God says, listen, the best thing I can do for you in discipline and consequence is I'll let you see what it's like to go try it on your own. God says there in verse 20, I will hide my face from them and let's see how that ends up. In a sense, God says, do you want to rebel against me? Do you want to turn away from me? Do you want to pursue other things? God says, I'll tell you what, how about you give that a try and let's see where that ends. Why don't you try it for a while? You know, it's amazing how consequences are some of the greatest revelations and the greatest teachers, and that's called reality discipline. God just says, okay, why don't you see where that lifestyle ends up? Why don't you see where that pursuit ends up? You think it's going to be great? Try it. Wait till you see what it ends in, the bridge out and crashing and burning on the other side, or the rotten fruit that goes. God says, let's see where the end of that will be. He says, verse 21, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Now, interesting, Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 10. When he talks there, he quotes this about how the Gentile people, you and I, non-Jews, are now a people who provoke the Jews to jealousy because of our relationship with their God, the God of Israel through Jesus Christ. And how we now provoke the Jews to jealousy because we're enjoying relationship with their God through his son, Jesus Christ. So God here and somewhat prophetically says, I'll provoke them to jealousy, the Jews, by those who are not a nation, the Gentiles. I'll move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. None of this sounds good. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will send against them the teeth of beasts. The idea is foreign nations that will devour with a poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within. Isn't that interesting? Terror within and today there's somewhat terrorists within as the result in some ways of turning away from God, moving and taking away his covering. For the young man and the virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hair. So God speaks of just the many consequential problems that would come. Natural disasters, hunger, famine, invasion of enemies, becoming vulnerable. And these were all things throughout the history of Israel that when they turned away from God, would they would incur these problems as God's protective covering was taken back from them and natural problems began to set in against them. Now notice, this is the mercy of God. He could have allowed worse to happen, but he says, verse 26, I would have said, I could have said the ideas, I will dash them to pieces, completely abolish them and eliminate them. I will make the memory of them cease from among men. Had I not feared, God says, the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, should misunderstand and then begin to say in a bragging attitude, our hand is high and not Yahweh who has done all this. In other words, God said, for my own glory and namesake, I had to even preserve and hold back some of the consequences that could have come and he says it could have been way worse but he says i didn't want your enemies the foreign lands the foreign invaders to say the bottom line here is their god can't take care of them our god's just stronger than their god and that the enemy adversaries would begin to brag and say we're stronger our hand is higher the lord isn't the one who's done all this we've done this we've just conquered them because our gods are stronger than yahweh god and so god says lest they should brag in that way i i i i in a sense held back and restrained in mercy some of the consequences and can i just say listen I am thoroughly convinced because of the nature of God that a lot of times when we do foolish things and make poor choices and go down roots of rebellion, I am thoroughly convinced that we're always experiencing more than likely the restrained version, the merciful version, because God's a God of mercy. And especially as his people, so often for his reputation's sake, 
he'll be so much more merciful and we think, oh, this is so bad. And the reality is if we were humble enough to admit it and accept it, the reality is it could have been way worse. Could have been way worse. And this is what God is telling Israel here for his own reputation. He forestalled some of the discipline. He says, verse 28, for they are a nation void of counsel. They won't listen to advice, nor is there any understanding in them. They've lost their discernment. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Boy, that is so critical the nation of Israel saw and that was the problem they did not consider the latter end where will that route take us boy that's always a problem for any nation when we don't consider the latter end oh this sounds like a great idea let's do this let's do that listen to politicians today are you thinking about where that's going to go well that sounds great on paper and it's getting you votes but do you know where that's going to bring the nation do you know what that's going to result in and in the same way that that was the, the, the error of Israel nationally, it can be the error of any nation nationally, and it can be our error personally if we don't make decisions considering the latter end. What's going to be the end of that choice? What's going to be the end of that path? That's why wise counsel and having discernment and seeking these things helps us to think about where certain things could end up lest we go down a road we should not. Verse 30, how could one chase a thousand, he says, and two men put 10,000 to flight unless, here's the only reason why, their rock, God, had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. So that was the only reason Israel at times was vulnerable was because God pulled back his protective covering and surrendered them over to their enemies. For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is the vine of Sodom, and the fields of Gomorrah, the grapes are the grapes of Gaul, and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, God says, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine, God says, and recompense. Notice what he says now. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. Now, what God is beginning to do here at this point in the song is to speak about how what would happen throughout history with Israel is God would allow the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Assyrians to be an instrument to come in and to, to judge and discipline his people. But then they, in their severity and their fierceness and their cruelty, cruelty would take it way too far and become very arrogant and very cruel and ultimately they would go to a place where then they would offend God because they would be overly severe with his people and God here is speaking now of how he will deal with Israel's enemies and God's saying, listen, vengeance is mine. Their foot's going to slip in due time, God says. And, and I will deal with it. They won't be able to get away with what they're doing in their cruelty and severity. He says, the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come are hastening upon them. And listen, as Israel was mistreated, God said, listen, you don't have to defend yourself. I'll defend you. And so often in our lives, sometimes when mistreatment comes, you know, it feels so good to retaliate. But listen, we rob God of the opportunity to do what God will do, which is to defend us himself. And to let God do it and to let God allow someone to slip and to experience the consequences as he deals with them. Verse 36, he says, for the Lord will judge. The idea is he will judge for his people. The idea is he will judge for his people, have compassion on his servants. This is the grace and mercy of God. He begins to have compassion on his suffering people, though they've rebelled against him. When he sees that their power is gone, that they've become broken and weakened in their sin. And there is not one remaining bond or free. And he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. In a sense, sarcasm there that uh, where's the help in these things now? Why can't they help you? You realize that they're useless and vain. Now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. God's pretty confident about that. He says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. So a statement of the sovereignty of God. He controls death and life. 
He rules and superintends over all things. There's no God that overrules him. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword, this is the the word of God direct here now, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Here God is picturing himself metaphorically as a warrior, as a judge, coming against those who are his enemies and rendering his righteous judgment, repaying those who have rebelled against him and made themselves the enemies of God. And again, as we read these things in the glittering sword and so forth here, boy, read Revelation 19 because it's a very prophetic and, and somewhat symbolic picture of ultimately what will happen when Jesus returns and when he comes back, not as a humble servant, but as a strong warrior king. And the sword of the word of God's spirit comes out of his mouth and destroys the Antichrist and all of God's enemies once for all. Verse 43 says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And Paul quotes that in Romans 15, 10. Rejoice, O Gentiles. The idea here is rejoicing the Gentile people in what God's done through Israel because of the salvation it's brought. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. So again, Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 15, rejoice, O Gentiles, because it is through ultimately the nation of Israel, despite all their failures, despite their shortcomings and their mistakes and their their times of rebellion, that God still through Israel would bring the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, through which... The Jews did not even recognize, but yet the Spirit of God has now offered and revealed to us as Gentile people, non-Jews. And we now benefit and are grafted into the vine and have come to know Jesus Christ. Boy, there's no way that that is fulfilled. More literally, the end of verse 43 there, he will provide atonement for his land and for his people than in Jesus. In Jesus, God provided atonement. Atonement from sin, the most important thing. And that's why we have a reason to be able to rejoice because we experience atonement for our sin because of what God did through Israel bringing Jesus for us. So Moses came with Joshua, verse 44, the son of Nun, spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. And Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life, God says. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. And let's close there. Father, we thank you for your word.